Luke chapter 6 and verse 40 says this, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, you know this, we are never going to be better than Jesus. You don't have to write that down, you know that. He will always be superior to us in every way. So as the divine son of God, he is unique, you see. There's no one exactly like him. He is in a class by himself. He is Lord of all. We cannot say that concerning you. But, however, we as believers can become like him. We can be like him. Now, on the one hand, if you look at it this way, we already are like him. We already are like him. You see, every born-again Christian has the life of Christ in him. Every real Christian has been born of God and has inherited God's nature on the inside, and the Spirit of Christ dwells in that person. Amen? And so every true Christian has the same standing with the Father that Jesus himself has because he has become the righteousness of God in Christ. And every Christian has the same access to the Father, to God's presence, as Jesus has. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. Woo. In fact, Jesus died and rose again to make us like himself. Let me give you a scripture. In John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus said, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now you see, in this verse, Jesus is not just giving us tips on better gardening. He's talking about himself. He is the seed that the Father sent into the earth. He died and he was buried for us. Amen. Now, if you plant cucumber seeds, you don't get apples. You get cucumbers, right? So if God planted Jesus as a seed, what is the fruit that Jesus produces? Well, it's Jesus' fruit. Amen. So in other words, Jesus not only died to take something bad out of us, sin and guilt and shame, but to put something good in us to impart himself into those who believe. In fact, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, as he is, so also are we in this world. Think about that. I said, think about that. As he is, so also are we in this world. So in one sense, you could pray all day long, 
make me more like Christ? And the father would say, as he is, so also are you in this world. You are like him. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And that's true of every child of God, right? From the greatest to the least of us. See, it's not that Pastor John has one kind of righteousness in Christ, and then the rest of you church members have like a duplicate second grade, you know, I'm in first class and you guys are traveling in coach. No, no, we all have the same standing with the Father. That means he will hear me just as easily as he will hear you. He will hear me just as easily as he would hear any other Christian. Do you believe that today? Can you act like you believe it? Can you do a little better than that? Ah, praise the Lord. Glory to God. That's true. Amen. And that's true for every child of God, whether you, you have been saved for 25 years or 25 minutes. So it's not like no one here can say, well, I am in the process of being born again. I'm 50-50 born again. Muscacheska. No, no, you, you, are, you are a child of God or you are a child of the devil. There's no in between. So, so that's true, everybody. We, in that moment, the moment you receive Christ, boom, all of that is downloaded into your spirit. Amen. It happened in a moment. And then you spend the rest of your life finding out what actually happened in that moment. So really the Christian life is a life of discovery. Discovery, you see. However, on the other hand, looking at it from another point of view, most Christians are not like Christ. Just look straight ahead. Most Christians are not like Christ. They may have what he has, but they don't live the way he lived. Amen. That's true. I, I'm testifying now, I have been cheated and lied to by Christians. I have had Christians steal from me, slander me, hurt me, be unkind to me, not keep their word to me, and betray me. And I'm not alone. There are people all over the body of Christ that would say, yeah, but that's exactly what happened to me too. Sadly, sadly, some, now I say some, meaning a few or there are those, some sinners are more honest and more trustworthy than some, again, I'm saying some, not all, but some, than some Christians. Ooh, you've never really been cheated till you've been cheated by a businessman who has a little fish on his business card or a little cross on his business card. Huh? Oh, yeah. That's why oh, I could preach another sermon right now. That's why I will never go into business with some Christians because I don't trust them. I don't trust them any further than I could throw them. Oh, brother, you know, the Bible tells us we have to trust one another. No, it doesn't. It says we have to love one another. I can love you and not trust you at all. <laughs> there are some people I would not leave alone in a room with any money. 
You could have a dozen CCTV cameras and three security guards. They'd still find a way to steal it. <laughs> Amen. Praise the Lord. And that's precisely why some people in this world are not even remotely interested in hearing about Christ. I said, that's the reason. That's the reason some people, they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Romans chapter 2 and verse 24 says this, For the name of God is blasphemed. That means that, that people are, they're, they're, they're speaking ill of God. They're, 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 they're criticizing, they're demeaning God. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, Paul wrote that. He's really, he was really talking, he's quoting from Isaiah, but he's really talking about Jews who, who boast in their religious credentials, but in reality, you know, they're, they're failing. But I, the, same, the same could be said of Christians. Usually, again, not always, but usually when you see someone who is antagonistic toward the church, you know, like you mentioned church, Bible, Jesus, and, and then suddenly they just become irrationally angry. Usually when someone's an enemy of the cross, not always, but usually, or often I should say, it's because that person has had a bad experience with a so-called Christian. They have all kinds of arguments, but when you boil it down, when you, when you probe beyond the surface, the real issue has nothing to do with theology or doctrine or science or anything like that. No, no, the real issue is they have been burned by somebody who did it in the name of Jesus. Come on, nod your head or just you know, look around the room, but that's true. Amen? There was a man in the 1800s, his name was Robert Ingersoll, and you don't know of him, but at that time he was famous. He was the most famous atheist of his generation. He wrote books arguing against the existence of God. You know, attempting to prove there is no God. And he gave lectures, which were well attended, where he criticized belief in anything, but especially he attacked Christianity. And many people, many people were influenced by this man, Robert Ingersoll. In a sense, you could say he was an evangelist from hell. And he won many converts. Robert Ingersoll was the son of a Presbyterian minister. Isn't that interesting? He was the son of a Presbyterian minister. Now many people have assumed that his father must have been, you know, a total hypocrite or maybe a heartless tyrant who abused Robert. But actually, according to all accounts, from what people can tell, what we can tell, his father was a good man. He's a good father. And he was a genuine believer, as far as we know, who really loved God. So what happened that his son became such a monster? Well, when Robert Ingersoll was a little boy, 
some crafty, ambitious people in the church accused his father, who was the pastor, accused his father of some controversy. I don't, I don't even know what it was. And they demanded that his father step down and resign from pastoring the church. Well, there was nothing to this charge. It was all a bunch of religious politics, you see, just ugly religious politics. But the denominational leaders came and put Robert Ingersoll's father on trial inside the church. They had like a little courtroom in the church. And though his father was eventually exonerated and cleared of all charges, yet during the process, Robert saw that his father was humiliated and actually never really fully recovered from that experience. And as a little boy, I think he was like nine or 11 years old, I don't remember, but from that experience, it poisoned his soul. And he never forgot it. And so when he grew up, he was determined to destroy the church that tried to destroy his father. So Robert Ingersoll went to hell and he took a whole lot of people with him. Why? The name of God is blasphemed because of you. You see? Some people in the church world are fake. You don't need me to tell you that, do you? Some people are fake. They're not truly converted. They're just pretending to be something they're not. One pastor I know, just very recently, we were talking about the lockdown situation and all that kind of business, and he said to me, and, and this, is a, this is someone who knows the Lord, he loves God, he said to me, he said, I contacted, now this is, these are not my words, okay? So if you're going to get angry, well, enjoy yourself. But, but uh, <laughs> he said to me, I contacted as many pastors as I could in Dimapur. And he said, and I am convinced that not even half of them are truly saved. That's what he said. I'm convinced half of them are not, they're not, they don't know God at all. Not even born again. Well, unconverted pastors will preach to unconverted congregations. A blind guide will lead those who follow right into the ditch. Are you listening to me? That's very true. That's very true. Now, it's interesting. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lists the perils, the hardships that he endured in the ministry. And he lists them in verse 26. Danger from rivers. He means like crossing deep rivers, that type of thing. Danger from robbers. He went on to say danger at sea. And then he said this, danger from false brothers. So that means they had them back then too. I said they had them back. So it's not unique to our experience. No, no, they've had them since the beginning. Amen? And fake Christians are just as dangerous as robbers. He says perils, dangers, being, you know, adrift in the sea is just as bad as dealing with phony Christians. Amen? God hates phoniness. 
I said, God hates phoniness. Jesus' harshest words were not for the Roman soldiers. His harshest words were not for the ordinary rabble. Even the sinners and the, and the prostitutes and the, and the tax collectors, his harshest words for, were for religious phonies. People who pretended to be something, and it's totally fake, they're pretending to be something they're not. I'll just go one step further until I get the response I'm hoping for. I believe God called me here to expose and root out religious fakes in Nagaland. That's why some people love me and most don't. <laughs> and I'm sure there's others who are, have that similar calling. Amen. I believe God's shining a bright light in our day. And all those fake and phonies are being exposed for who they are. Why? Because phonies give birth to Robert Ingersoll's. That's why. The children of fake Christians will be agnostics. We don't want that. A lot of people are going to go to hell. That's just a fact. But we don't want anybody going to hell because of us. Amen. Amen. Now, praise the Lord. To be clear, there are many in the church who are not phonies. They're not fakers. Amen? Uh, to be clear, there are many in the church, they are genuinely saved. They really love the Lord. <laughs> Coming your hair, you raising your hand. Okay, praise the Lord. But they're not fake, they're not phony, they're not hypocrites, but they have imperfections. Okay, good. You're doing well. <laughs> In fact, I've been in church my whole life, right? And I've been, I've known a lot of Christians. I fellowship with a lot of ministers, more so in, in you know, adult life. But I don't know one perfect Christian. Jeppy comes close, but uh. no, I don't know one. <laughs> you want to testify? I, I, <laughs> I don't know one person who's flawless. Even super saints. Everybody I know, even well-known men of God, and I've had the privilege of maybe, you know, fellowshipping with people that I would consider, you know, fairly well-known in our day, and all of them have some little rough edge somewhere or a blind spot. Even the Bible tells me that Peter could make mistakes. Go read, Acts, uh, go read Galatians, I think it's chapter 2, where Paul said, when I came to Antioch, I confronted Peter to his face because he was wrong. Because he was acting hypocritically. That must have been real interesting that day in church. There's Peter, there's Paul, and everybody else is going like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> ooh, what's going on? <laughs> Paul himself said, I don't consider myself perfect. Right? Now, I would. <laughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned, he would be the gold standard for Christianity. If we could be half as good as he was, boy, amen. <laughs> wow, that would be amazing. We'll settle for one-tenth. <laughs> but he said, no, no, no. Only Christ is perfect. But I'm moving forward. However, 
Let me get to my main point. While none of us are perfect, some believers, many believers, have glaring defects in their character, which is a serious detriment to themselves and also a stumbling block to others, right? Like everybody's got a blind spot. Everybody has a weakness. Everybody has some area that they need to improve upon. But there's a whole bunch of people in in the body of Christ and uh, they're a mess. (laughs) They're just a flat mess, right? I know you don't want to say amen now, but you know, you know, it's, you know, it's true. So the question remains, why are so many Christians so unchrist-like? Well, let's go back to the scripture we began with, Luke chapter 6, verse 40. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So those who are not like him have not been taught as they should. An untrained saint often will live no differently than a regular sinner. Paul said to the Corinthians, you know, you, you guys are carnal. You're babies. And he says, and are you not behaving like mere men? It's in 1 first, first Corinthians chapter 3. I think it's verse 3. Are you not behaving like mere men? You're, you're acting like people who don't even know the Lord. Why? Well, they, they were immature. Most Christians don't need a miracle. They need maturity. Amen. Now, the Greek word translated trained in this verse, in Luke 6.40. The Greek word in this verse is katartizo, katartizo. And it has a variety of meanings. It means to mend. It means to repair. It means to adjust thoroughly. To refit. To supply. To restore, to perfect, to complete, to make one what he ought to be. So, the untrained believer is incomplete in his formation and therefore imperfect in his behavior. The untrained untaught believer is incomplete in his formation, in his substance, and therefore he is imperfect in his actions and behavior. Now Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 in the New King James Version says, you are complete in him. And you might say, wait a minute, we are complete in Christ. Yes, just like a newborn baby is complete. When an infant comes from his mother's womb, 
He has all the body parts. It's not like three months later he grows an arm. No, no, you, it all, it's all there. No, no new parts are added. It's not like, you know, three weeks later he gets another toe and the next day he gets, you know, an ear. No, he comes out, that's it. Everything's there. Everything he'll ever be, it's right there. But it's not developed. So, yes, you are complete the very moment you receive Christ, but you are not developed the moment you receive Christ. Your heart, your spirit is complete in Christ, but your soul, and I mean this, I mean your mind, your emotions, they need to be repaired, restored, refitted, and adjusted. Amen. So a disciple is, first of all, a person who has been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. He is, first of all, the person who has been translated. That's what the Bible talks about in the book of Colossians chapter 1 around verse 13. He has been translated or transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Secondly, he is a person who is being transformed by the renewing of his mind. So that means there are a lot of translated people who still need to be transformed. Do they belong to God? Yes, they do. Are they in the kingdom of God? Yes, they are. Are they living like God? No, they're not. Or at least not as they should be. Right? The transition, the transference happens the moment you believe. Nobody is like, you know, well, I'm, I, I left the kingdom of darkness and I'm on my way to the kingdom of light. I, oh, I'm kind of like in the kingdom of shadows. No, you're in boom and then you're in boom, you're in the other. But the, but the trans, transformation through the renewing of your mind, that is a process. Nobody can say, I have been transformed. No, you, you would more correct to say, I am being transformed. Hopefully, I'm better today than I was yesterday. Hopefully, you can say, I'm better today. I'm better this year than I was last year. That's why it's good to keep photographs. You get discouraged, look at a picture from, you know, 2008, and you go, yeah, I'm doing better. <laughs> look at that guy. Man, he was sorry. <laughs> right? Praise the Lord. Glory to God. So, first his spirit is saved, and then his soul meaning your mind, will, and emotions. I'm using the word soul specifically. So a Christian cannot be what he ought to be without undergoing the discipleship process. See? And so it's not enough just to say, pray for me. Everybody pray for me. Well, that's the easy way. But no, you cannot shortcut the process. There's no shortcut. Right? Can I just get, you know, prophet Zama Zama to anoint me with oil and I circumvent? No, no, there's no, there's no process. There's no, there's no way around it. You got to take this road. This is the only road, the road of discipleship. You, you know, you, you, could, you could say, well, I'm just going to fast for two days and then I'll go to Jerusalem and be baptized in River Jordan. Well, you can do it if you want to, but when you come back, you're still going to have to go through the process. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And, that, and nobody said that's always pleasant. Nobody said it's always pleasant. Everybody loves to catch fish. Nobody wants to clean a fish. Right? 
Everybody rejoices when a baby is born. Ooh, congratulations, you got a baby. But then when it's time to change the diaper, God bless you. <laughs> when the baby's crying, oh, mother, uh, your, your child needs you. <laughs> Isn't that right? But it would be a tragedy if that baby never grew. We all rejoice. Oh, Sister Zama Zama had a little baby boy. Oh, praise the Lord. 40 years later, he's still a baby boy. Oh, praise the Lord. No, no, no. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. We want children to grow. We want them to develop. We want them to mature. And nobody says it's pleasant. God created teenagers so that parents could know what it's like to have somebody who denies your very existence. <laughs> Right? Right? It's not pleasant. Amen? A Christian cannot be what he ought to be without undergoing the discipleship process. Now, God saved us. We did not save ourselves. We didn't even help him out. Like, me and God saved me. No, 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 no. You and God did not save you. God saved you. You just received what he freely offered. Amen? And God, listen carefully, God is the one who is discipling you. You're not discipling yourself. I said, you are not discipling yourself. We are simply submitting to his instruction and guidance. Philippians 1.6 in the NIV says this. He who began a good work in you. Did God begin a good work in you? Yes, he did. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, or he will continue to do it until it's perfect, until the day of Jesus Christ, until the day the Lord returns. So discipleship is not a self-improvement course. It's the grace of God. He's the savior. He's also the master. He's the one, he's the teacher. He's the trainer. He's the one, he's the, he, he is the potter. We are the clay. The clay did not shape itself. I, look what I made myself. No, no, the potter made you. Amen. And be encouraged. Everybody be encouraged. God is not finished with you. You look at some project that's not yet finished, and you think, this is, what, is this, what is this? What are they doing here? This is never going to be anything. But, you know, if you'll be patient. You know, the workers are working. The, 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 the laborers are laboring. And it's going to become the, the finished product. If you'll just be patient. You know, they, they, the, the bridge that was uh, uh, nearby here on, on the way from the church to my house and beyond, you know, that bridge, you know, got cracked and it's, it's old. And so they start to build a new bridge. And every day I would go by that construction and think, when are they going to finish that bridge? <laughs> Please, Lord, <laughs> when are they going to finish? And sometimes it looked like, what are they doing? They're not doing anything. I felt like rolling down the window. Wake up, guys. Hello. What are you doing? You're sleeping. Wake up. <laughs> right? But eventually, miracles do happen. The bridge was completed in our lifetime. I mean, that's really amazing. <laughs> right? Well, God is working on you. He's not finished. 
So every wife can look at her husband and smile and say, God is working on you. And the husband can say, I know, but you're not God. (laughs) And he can do a work in you that would amaze even your harshest critic. Even your mother would be impressed. (laughs) Even your former headmaster at at your grammar school would be impressed. Even your brothers and sisters would say, I don't believe it. (laughs) Amen. And the change that a person experiences by becoming a disciple can be just as great, if not greater, than the change he experienced when he first gave his heart to Christ. That's, That's important. The change that a person experiences through the discipleship process, the change in his life, that change can be just as great, just as dramatic as the change he experienced the day he was converted. See, a lot of times our Christian testimonies are like, I gave my heart to Christ and they lived happily ever after. No, they didn't live happily ever after. Then they had to deal with all kinds of problems and and enemies and all kinds of nonsense and and opposition. No, no, that's just, the, the new birth is not the end of the story. The new birth is the beginning of the story. That's the work he began in you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Now, a disciple is a student of God's word. Listen to me, we have a Bible school, but you know what? Every church, in one sense of the word, I truly believe, every church should be a Bible school. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be that, you know, if you're serious about God, you really want to know the Lord, then you have to go to some faraway town somewhere and become a student in some school. It should be that the foundation of faith was laid right in your local church. The reason, the reason why we sometimes have to have these schools are the church are not doing a very good job. In fact, in some respects, and, and, and uh, I believe the Lord has led us to have a Bible school, but, and we are going to have a Bible school next year, by the way, and, and you should consider becoming a part of it. Come what may. I said, come what may. What was I going to say? <laughs> but if you come to this church regularly, and I don't just mean over a period of a few days or even a few months, but regularly, eventually you're going to get the same education, spiritual education as the students were. The only difference is they get it in a very concise, compacted form because we have to give it to them all at, a, at one setting. But, but you're going to get the same thing. Praise the Lord. So, you know, you, you don't have to say, I think I'll go to some other country and I'll become a Bible school student. You're a member of this church. If you just, we're having, we're having Bible school tonight. We're having Bible school tonight. What you're learning here, you know, I mean, that's just as good as, you know, some places you travel halfway around the world to get. A disciple is a student of Christ's word. He listens, learns, and loves the word. To the extent you don't love God's word, you're not a very good disciple. A disciple receives the word, relies 
upon the word and relays the word to others. He hears it, holds it, and heralds it to others. He takes it, trusts it, and tells it. And those three words, that summarizes what a disciple is. And this verse here aptly describes a true disciple. Colossians 3.16 in the Amplified Bible. Let the spoken word of Christ have its home within you. Dwelling in your heart and mind. Permeating every aspect of your being. So some people have a Bible in every room. Got a Bible in the, in the bedroom. Got a Bible in the sitting room. Some of you have a Bible in the bathroom. And that's fine. But there's another room where the Bible needs to live, and that's the room of your heart. And in fact, it needs to fill every chamber, every part of your being. Permeate means like soak, soak through. Amen? To be embedded in every part of your life. So the disciple is in process. And he goes from believing to becoming, and from becoming to behaving. That's discipleship. He does what he does because he is who he is. Christ has shaped him through the word. See, a lot of times we, 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 we hear messages, there's even books, that, that have the title like The Imitation of Christ. I've never liked that. I've never, I've never, I, I think that may give the wrong impression. I'm not trying to imitate Christ. He's working in me to shape me and mold me and mature me so that the life he put in me can shine through. I'm not trying to, see, imitation sounds like I'm trying to pretend to be something that I'm not. I'm aping, I'm parroting, I'm echoing. That's not, that's not discipleship. I first become before I can do. Amen? The disciple's aim is not merely to know the truth in his mind, but to show the truth by his life. The goal of every disciple is to become like his master so that he may represent the master well and continue his work. The goal of every disciple is to become like the master, to become like Jesus. Why? Well, just to become like him. No, so that we may represent him well in a world where he is not represented well. And we may continue his work. Another word for disciple is apprentice. Apprentice learns a trade. Well, you're learning the kingdom. Not by going to apprentice school, but by living with the master. In fact, he lives in you. Amen. So, to become like Christ. When we speak of becoming more like Jesus, we often, and rightly so, we often think of the character of Christ. We, when we talk about becoming more like Christ, we often think about 
the character of Christ, living holy and being pure. And that's true. That's right. And that should come first. But I would like to give you this thought today. There is another aspect to being Christ-like. And that's living victoriously and having power. So in other words, being like Christ is not just living right and doing right, but it's also having Christ's ability and living a triumphant life like Christ. Think about this. Jesus was never sick a single day in his life. So being healthy and whole, we could say that is also being Christ-like. Jesus never told a lie, but he also never had Lyme disease. He never sinned, and he also never had a stroke. He never transgressed, and he also never had TB. Are you listening to me? It's not a sin to be sick, but it's also not God's will for you to be sick either. A ministry friend of mine many years ago, he uh, contracted hepatitis, one form of hepatitis, and his skin became jaundiced. It's a disease of the liver, I think. His skin became jaundiced, you know, kind of a dark yellowish color. His joints, you know, were aching, uh, you know, he, he, had, he had like, you know, fever, I guess, and, and pain all over. And he's lying in bed just moaning and groaning, you know, just, just felt terrible. And his wife came in. This is a ministry friend of mine, minister friend of mine. His wife came into the room and chided him and upbraided him. She didn't say, oh, baby, baby, my heart goes out to you, baby. Oh, mama's going to take care of my baby. No, no, she didn't say that. She said, you call yourself a man of God? You call yourself a man of faith? Just sitting there laying in bed day after day after day. When are you going to put on the armor of God, huh? When are you going to take up the shield of faith? I'd like to know. We'd all like to know. When are you going to grab hold of the sword of the spirit? Just going to lay there and let the devil walk all over you and take your life? When are you going to practice what you preach? When are you going to remember that Jesus said you can speak to the mountain and it will move if you believe? When are you going to do that? And he said at first he felt insulted. I'm hurting all over. I don't need this. Come on. I need someone to just kind of pat me on the back and rub my belly and say, it's going to be all right, baby. No. But he kind of got a little riled up and he stirred himself up. And he crawled out of bed. He said, I was hurting all over. I looked, I looked terrible. looked like a corpse, you know. And he started speaking. By his stripes, I was healed. I rebuke this disease in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give it to you. And he went on like that. And he said, within just a short while, he, I mean, like within an hour or so, I guess, he was completely healed. Woo. Woo. Now, if I get sick, I don't want that, but I'll do it myself. <laughs> and I'm not going to come to your room and do that because I'm not married to you. Praise the Lord. Amen. So what I'm saying is being healed is also Christ-like. Jesus never suffered from manic depression. 
We don't read that, you know, he was getting psychotherapy, you know, on weekends. He, he was taking mind-altering behavioral drugs as he, you know. Jesus never had an anxiety attack. And I mean, he had lots of opportunities, but he didn't take them, right? So to be like Christ is not only to be free from sin, but also free from fear. Come on, you think, like, well, I want to be more Christ-like. And you think that means you don't smoke and you don't chew. Well, how about this? Stop chewing on fear every day. Stop smoking on anxiety every afternoon. Hallelujah. Jesus was never afraid for a single moment of his earthly life and beyond. There's never a moment where Jesus was nervous. For some Christians, there was never a moment they weren't nervous. <laughs> Even when he's before Herod and Pontius Pilate, he wasn't like, oh, God help me, I don't know what to say here. I'm so nervous, I'm going to never give me some medicine. <laughs> no, no, he was never afraid. Never depressed. That's being Christ-like. Hallelujah. I mean, I understand people need help, and I'm not trying to criticize somebody, but I don't think you should be content to live, like, dependent on, you know, opioid drugs and, and, and painkillers just so you can make it through the day. I don't believe that's God's will for your life. I, I'm, I know it's not his best for your life. I believe he, God wants you to be healed and not live there, live in that dark place. Amen. Amen. Jesus was never confused. <laughs> Shall we pay taxes? Ah, I don't know. He knew what to say and what to do in every situation. We caught this woman in adultery. Moses said we should stone her. What do you say, hot chat? And he's like, no. Ah, I don't know. I'm so confused. No, no. He waited for a moment, got up, and he had an answer. You, you and I couldn't dream of that answer if we spent 100 years. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Jesus was always at the right place at the right time. Some Christians are always at the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> they say, I guess I'm just unlucky. No, you need to, you need to be a disciple. <laughs> you need to be led by the Spirit of God, what you do. Amen. Jesus wasn't bewildered and perplexed about life. We don't see him sitting under a fig tree saying, I don't know. What's going on? <laughs> What's going on with, I don't get it. I don't understand the Pharisees. I, I thought the people would love me. <laughs> What's going on? I was so popular last year. No, 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 no. Never had that problem. He was not riddled with doubt. When the devil said, if you're the son of God, command these bread to become stones to become bread, rather, he didn't say, I think I'm the son of God. I'm trying to be the son of God. I hope I'm the son of God. Let me pray about that. No, he, there, was no, there was no confusion. There was no doubt. Jesus never lacked. Jesus never lacked. He was always richly provided for. 
until the day he went to the cross for us. Even when he fasted in the wilderness, and fasting is not the same thing as starving. Starving is when you don't have any food. Fasting is when you voluntarily abstain from food. So if you don't have money to buy groceries, that's not fasting. That's malnutrition. But when, but when, you, when, you, when you willingly say, no, I'm not going to eat because I need to spend more time with God, that's called fasting. And afterwards, angels came and ministered to him in the wilderness. Jesus supported the 12. Those people left, forsook their nets, left their job, got up from the table of the tax collection and followed him. And he, he had to financially support them and their families because some of them were married and had families. Peter was married. How do you know? The Bible tells us one instance that Peter's mother-in-law was sick. How can you have a mother-in-law without being married? That really would be bad. <laughs> huh? When a woman poured expensive perfume on Jesus, some of the disciples complained. And they said, this should have been sold and given to the poor. And Jesus answered them in Matthew 26, 11, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Notice carefully, Jesus did not consider himself to be poor. He did not consider himself to be poor. When they said, this could be sold and given to the poor, he didn't say, nobody here is poorer than me. I'm the poorest boy in the room. No, 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 no. He said, the poor will always be with you, but I, so he doesn't consider himself poor, I will not always be with you, you know, in the natural. Then again, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, though he was rich, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This verse says Jesus was rich, but that he became poor. When did he become poor? Well, it obviously was not the day when that woman was pouring expensive perfume on his feet. When did he become poor? On the cross. And he did that for us, so that we could become rich. Oh, that's just talking about uh, spiritual riches. No, it's not. That chapter is talking about money. That's actually talking about giving. Praise the Lord. So if we are Christ-like, we won't go through life poverty-stricken. The goal of every disciple is to be like Christ in every way. Not just in one or two ways. In every way. Hallelujah. Amen. So if we are like Christ, we will not only have his attitude, but also his anointing. The very word Christ means the anointed one. So we will possess the mind of Christ, but that's not all. We'll also perform the miracles of Christ. Jesus himself said in John 14, verse 12, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. 
A disciple is an apprentice who's being trained to continue on the work of his master. You may want to be discipled so that you can have a better home life or so that you can just uh, have a, be a better person. Okay, fine. But that's not the primary reason, or let's say it's not the only reason. Maybe it's better to say it's not the only reason Jesus is discipling you. He wants you to continue his ministry in the earth. I said he wants you to continue his ministry in the earth. Why doesn't God just do like, you know, miracles and signs and wonders like he did in the Bible? Because we are the body of Christ. So if God is going to do anything in the earth, he's going to use Christ's body. Amen. Praise the Lord. Some people think being like Christ is having a beard. <laughs> or that's not why I have a beard. Some people think being like Christ is, you know, having a long beard or having a long robe and riding a donkey. No, no. The Pharisees had beards and donkeys. That doesn't make you like Christ. Hmm? It is revealing his nature and manifesting his ability. Now, on social media, I don't know how many of you use Twitter. Maybe not as many in this location. But if you check it out, Twitter has all kinds of accounts. Some of them are bogus and fraudulent, you know. So Twitter puts a blue check mark. Check it out. Or a blue verified badge beside accounts of notable individuals or public accounts. And this lets everyone know that this, this account is the real Donald Trump. This account is the, 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 the bona fide government account. This account really is who they say they are. The character and the charisma and when I say charisma, I don't mean personality. I mean like the gifts of the Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit. The character and the charisma of Christ is heaven's blue check mark for your account. See, how do we know? The world is looking for the real Jesus Christ. The world is looking for the real Christians. If they don't see Christ's character in us, if they don't see the work of Christ through us, there's no indication that this is genuine. I think the whole world is looking for the real Christians. Jesus himself said, and you know it, John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you wear a cross around your neck. If you have love, for one another. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. One more point and let you go today. The purpose of discipleship is to make us more like Christ. But there is a price to pay. I know everybody went, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just, there is a price to pay. And Jesus urges us in the Bible, in the Gospels, he urges us to count the cost. We must consider carefully what is required of us. Salvation is a free gift to be received by faith. Discipleship is not free. It costs you. 
Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 27. Luke 14, 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoo! I bet that's not your favorite verse. I'm guessing most of you don't have that verse on a poster on your bedroom wall. It's not your daily confession. But this is the cost of discipleship. Is Jesus telling us to hate our families? That would be a huge, enormous contradiction because in John 13, among other places, we are commanded by him to love one another. So why would he command us to love others and at the same time tell us to hate our mother and our father? The Bible tells us to honor our mother and our father, as a matter of fact, right? Jesus, in this statement, is using a figure of speech, hyperbole. He's intentionally exaggerating to make a point. He's using drastic language to capture your attention. This is what he means. Your devotion to Christ should be so strong, so passionate, that in comparison, it looks like you hate everybody and everything else. So we could paraphrase what Jesus said this way. If you love anything or anyone more than me, you're never going to become like me. Think about that. If you love anyone or anything more than me, see, a disciple is one who's being trained to be like his master. If you love anything or anyone, if you even love your own life more than me, you will never become like me. Not in the fullness. You become what you love. You become what you love. Your soul moves in the direction of that which you set your affections on. You know, it could be a hobby, it could be recreation, it could be business, it could be anything, but that's where you're going. You're moving toward what you love. That's why it's so important to God that we love Him. Not just serve Him, but love Him. Amen. Praise the Lord. Bearing the cross doesn't mean struggling with sickness. Jesus was never sick. It means surrendering to the will of God, even when it costs you. It means disowning yourself and disregarding your own life because you have given your life to another. There is a cost to discipleship, my friends. And in a word, we could say it is commitment. There is a cost 
to being a disciple. And in a word, we could say it is this, commitment. Commitment. Jesus is fully committed to you. But he needs us to be fully committed to him. And almost every Christian says, but Lord, I am. I am. Lord, you know that I am fully committed to you. And I'm sure Wednesday night crowd would, would probably say that. And a lot of people would agree with you. But if I have given my all to him, why do I always hear him asking for more? Lord, I want more of you. You can have more of him when he can have more of you. Yes. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Being a disciple, you'll forgive me for the length I, I need to finish. Being a disciple is not based on one or two major decisions in life. It is based on hundreds of minor decisions that we make every day. It's not the big event that makes us a disciple, it's the daily walk that defines the disciple. And oftentimes, most of the time, those little decisions that we make every day are made because of commitment. In other words, there's a lot of things that I choose to do, not because I feel like it. Honestly, I don't always feel like being here on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. And I, I'm sure you feel the same way too. Please don't nod your head. But I'm sure you do. I honestly don't feel like reading my Bible praying. I certainly don't honestly feel like doing what is right all the time. And it's not a decision that's based on what everybody else is doing. We don't have to look around and, and, and take a survey. Much of the time, those little decisions that we make are due because of our loyalty and dedication to him. It's simply because we know that's what he wants us to do. Are you listening to me? So you cannot be a part-time disciple because you don't have a part-time savior. This is not a popular message, but perhaps it's needful. And perhaps this is not a message that tastes good in your mouth but it may be the message that you need the most and it will certainly bring the biggest change in your heart and your soul. And I'm telling you, there's a world out there that wants you to hear this message. They, the church needs to hear this message. I wish I could stand before you as the perfect example of a Christian, but that would be a flat lie. And you know it. But I would like to believe I am heading in the right direction. And with God's help, I'm making progress, and I, I believe and I hope that I'm becoming more like him every year, maybe every day. And when I mess up, I fess up. When I fall, I fall at his feet. When I, when I, when I go awry, I come back home, and he's so merciful. And I want to tell you something. He's been so patient with me. I think he's been so patient with me so that you could be encouraged. He'll be patient with you too.